This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. This episode of Green and Gold History is presented by New Era. New Era Cap is proud to be the official cap of your Oakland athletics. Next time you visit the Coliseum, be sure to drop by the New Era Cap stand and pick up your A's New Era Authentic Collection Cap. Remember, you can always visit us at neweracap.com to shop our latest selection, including our limited edition and exclusive drops. New Era Cap, the official on-field cap of Major League Baseball. We are at episode 10 of Memories with Voos. Steve Vucinich, the A's longtime equipment manager who is retiring after 54 years with the club since day one back in 1968. And we will focus on this episode primarily on the 1989 season, the good, the bad, and, and what happened in the community and how the A's were affected and how they helped to repair and rebuild uh, the community as well. But first, as we record this, Voos, it's trading deadline week. And the A's made an announcement last night that they acquired Andrew Chafin, left-hand reliever from the Chicago Cubs. It may be the only move. You may be doing this on multiple occasions over the course of the next few days before Friday at 1 o'clock Pacific. What is it like when that happens? Uh, you've, you've introduced yourself to hundreds of new players to the A's organization. Take me through the steps of what it's like as Andrew gets ready to walk inside the A's clubhouse uh, in San Diego. Well, the first step was Dave Forrest emailed me and said that, and Mickey Morbido too, about we're trying to acquire him. We think it should be done in the next half hour. And a half hour later, we get told it's been uh, completed and medicals are done. And so uh, uh, wait for a confirmation that they have told Andrew. And as soon as I get that, I get his number and I call him. And one of the first things we talked about was uniform numbers. And I had a number picked out for him. But he asked if there's any chance he could have number 39. Well, 39 right now is a male machine, and uh, he's in AAA. So I said, sure, we could do that. You're a veteran. So started that process, talked some sizes with him, knowing that he's arriving about 3 o'clock today. So then I get to the ballpark today about 10.30, pull out jerseys and letters and numbers. People always wonder, how do you get him so fast? Well, we've always got extra stock of every size, plus letters and numbers of each color for each jersey. And uh, each city has a, a seamstress, if not available at the ballpark, nearby. We do the same thing for the visiting team. So those jerseys are currently being processed and made. And uh, I'm waiting for Chafin to get here and I can uh, fill out the rest of the stuff. Funny thing is he's a big guy, so he's double extra large and everything. And he wears short pants. And I really didn't have any short pants. Not a lot of guys wear them. Those are all custom ordered and not a stock item. And so I looked, and he actually wears the exact same size as Mitch Moreland. So I went to Mitch, and I said, hey, you've got two shorts, two longs. He said, mostly I'll be wearing longs, so let him take my shorts. In the meantime, last night, I emailed our factory, Fanatic slash Nike in Pennsylvania, told him about the trade and wanted to get the process going, and I need to get his sizes. Uh, he's a tapered jersey, so that makes it a little different that it doesn't just come out of my stock here. It will for one day. But hopefully tomorrow – with having all day to uh, produce these items, four pairs of pants, two of each color and two of each uh, jersey color. So that's eight, that's uh, 12 items. I'm hoping that we get tomorrow FedEx and I'll let I'll know within an hour if they could get it out in time. Otherwise I'll shoot it off to Anaheim for Thursday. So it's a process, everybody says, well, you must go be crazy, going nuts, doing whatever. Um, 
it's just you got to track down the sizing and we actually have a database for all the equipment managers where you can track down the sizing that helps a little bit uh unfortunately the cubs didn't have their all their info in there so it didn't help me that much but a quick phone call here and there we get the sizes and uh they'll be all suited up you wouldn't even know they was wearing a different uniform yesterday i've always wondered i'm sure some folks that are listening think the same thing maybe not necessarily on the road all the time but how far back do you still have jerseys of players that were in the organization that are still playing in the big leagues or playing professionally somewhere that who knows i mean they like sam all just came back to the a's after the brief stint he had back in 2017 that's probably a tougher case because he was only here for like 10 or 11 games but somebody that had a, a longer tenure with the a's that's still playing that could come back do you still have stocks of those uh, of those players information in their uniforms tucked well, away someplace We've got all the information, uh, but um, I don't keep those things around. Number one, they've almost changed every year. I mean, one year they put the Nike logo on there so you couldn't use anything from the previous season. It had the Majestic logo, Fanatics logo. Uh, so, And then they changed the, the style of the jerseys. The colors are the same. The sizing's the same, but maybe they've uh, upgraded the fit, the cut uh, under the arms and put a lighter material there. So it's constantly changing. So. It doesn't make any sense to hold on to them for more than a couple of years, max. All the years, all the players that have come through the clubhouse for the first time to, to play for the athletics, you must have uh, some thoughts that come to mind about some of the guys that have come through and what that interaction was like that very first time when you saw either a very young player come to the big leagues for the first time or somebody that was a veteran, let's say like when we we're talking about the 89 campaign when Dave Parker was with the A's. Uh, play The difference between those types of interactions when that player comes to Oakland for the first time. Well, Parker was a uh, off off-season acquisition, so it took place in spring training. And I'd always heard he was a great guy. He's funny and he's loud. And he was one of the funniest guys we've ever had in Oakland. He would just bang on Conseco unmercifully. And it was really entertaining to sit around and say, okay, Parkway, what time are you going to start getting on Conseco today? But, uh, yeah, you've got uh, rookies that come in, maybe never had a day in the big leagues, maybe never even been to a big league ballpark. So I'll take him outside. We'll we'll get his sizing. We'll get all the stuff we need: sweatshirts, t-shirts, hoodies, whatever. And then I'll also tell him I'll pull him outside and I'll say, "Look, at, you got any questions about anything, whether it's travel, hotel, um, equipment, clubhouse, demeanor, all that stuff? You can come to me, and it would be just between you and I. And so you know, give him a a little uh, chance to lean on somebody if he had some questions. I told him no question is too dumb to ask. So. Uh, that's been kind of a my mantra to talk to the young players that come in that way. Now you get a veteran that comes in today. I'll, I'll be with him, but he knows what he likes, and I've already got his sizing and all that stuff down. So he'll be well equipped, and uh, I look forward to meeting him. I heard he's a character. I heard he's an old-time cowboy, kind of like Homer Bailey was. Uh, I've heard that uh, he's like Homer. He'll walk in and have a pair of boots and literally have – horse poop on his boots because he rode a horse somewhere that day maybe but uh, um, it's always a challenge uh, and it's always successful so I, I, I enjoy meeting the new players as they come in and uh, taking care of them. Let's uh, move on to the memories of 1989 and as we start that uh, that process boost how much of a hangover how difficult was at the end of 88 losing to the Dodgers uh, a team that was heavily favored the A's were in that year to win the World Series, it didn't happen. And then looking forward toward uh, what the challenges were, what the expectations were going into 89. 
Well, uh, the winter of 89, we signed free agent Mike Moore and just really bolstered the pitching staff. So now you had Mike Moore, you had Dave Stewart, you had Kurt Young, you had, uh, uh, I forget who the other couple of starters are, but uh, a, a good compliment. And then just that just gave us another race. I mean, Mike Moore is a number one, Dave Stewart is a number one. Not a lot of clubs have number ones, or let alone two of them. So we, we go into spring training with them, and uh, the guys, they're on a mission. I mean, they really are focused. Hey, we got beat last year. That's not going to happen this year. And then Conseco goes down with a hammock, and then Eckersley goes down. And we had to just kind of keep pace with the Angels. Uh, they were managed by Doug Rader at the time, and we are in a pennant race with them. And uh, we finally pulled ahead, I think, in late August, early September. But uh, Conseco comes back. First game back is in the Sky Dome, Toronto. Our first trip there, boom, hits two home runs. Eck comes in for the save. So right then, you're just like, hey, now we're going to roll. We're going to go. So we make the uh, playoffs, and we go to Toronto for the playoffs again. And, of course, that's when the historic home run, the Conseco hit. The funny thing was, our first trip midseason there, which was just after the All-Star break, McGuire hit a home run almost to the same spot, but it wasn't national TV. It was maybe down 10 feet to the left, but very, very close. And nobody made any do about that. And uh, But uh, we went into the playoffs. We beat them four out of five. I'll never forget how loud that Sky Dome was, probably as loud as any stadium I've ever heard. Of course, the roof was closed, and you throw 55,000 uh, Canadians in there rooting for their team. It's a national team. So uh, it, it was exciting, and now we get to go to the Bay Bridge. We we flew back after celebrating in Toronto. We flew out of Hamilton, and we were while we were uh, on the uh, highway to get to Hamilton Airport, we were listening to the Giants-Cubs playoff game, and then, of course, the Cubs uh, lost to the Giants the next day on that hit by uh, Will Clark, and we set up a World Series, and we were really excited about playing a World Series, but we sure didn't want to lose to the Giants. As the season was going along, and you mentioned how the A's kind of caught fire and did some good things and eventually won the division by seven. But before that happened, you reacquired, the A's reacquired Ricky Henderson. You know, he came back in June of, of of that year. He stole 52 bases in like 80 games. He was the Ricky Henderson that everybody had remembered. What was that spark like for the ball club? <laughs> it was like we could pull off a trade for Ricky and – to me, we didn't give up that much. I think it was Cataray, Plunk, and somebody else. But uh, it was a uh, it was an exciting time to bring Ricky back. He was a little bit of the catalyst we needed. Uh, we were a good club already. Like I said, we'd won the year before and we're going to win this year. But he was that just made us that much better. It was exciting. You said fifty-two bases in, in eighty games. That's that's almost unheard of. And uh, came back. Didn't know what number to wear. He had worn 35 with us. Didn't want to wear 35 again. Or, and then uh, so we gave him number 22. So then he worked out a trade with Ron Hassey, who was wearing number 24 at the time. He was going to buy Ron Hassey a custom-made suit. I think Ron Hassey's still waiting for it. But uh, but uh, Ricky then became 24 and uh, led us to the promised land. They had a great World Series. You touched on Dave Parker earlier when we were talking about new players coming to the organization. He led the team in RBIs that year with 97. He had 22 home runs. You know, he played with Stargell and then, you know, those those pirate clubs. Uh, certainly had that that background and that experience. What did he bring inside that clubhouse? Well, like I mentioned earlier, he, he was just a loud, funny guy. And when a guy is loud 
and funny. He commands respect, especially when you think about all the things he's done on the field with the Pirates, with the Reds, and with us. And so he commanded a lot of respect. He was a great leader. He's there in 88, and I think that's one of the – I won't say I, I think it was one of the reasons, but it is that we won. And he was had some veteran leadership, and he led by example on the field and by being a cut up in the clubhouse and keeping everybody loose, and that's important. On our last episode, you had made a point to discuss the leadership qualities of Carney Lansford. Played third base for the club that year again. Uh, been with the team. He hits 336 for the club and is the best in the league, at, you know, in batting. And he brought so much as well defensively. When you talk about Parker, you talk about McGuire, and you talk about the great pitching with Stu and, and Mike Moore and others and Eck. Arnie Lansford just kind of did his thing, didn't he? Just kind of went about his business, got hits, got on base, and scored runs. Well, it's funny because you had a Stu as leading the leader of the pitching staff, Eck the relievers, although Eck wasn't very vocal, he was quiet. And then you had Steiny, and then you had Carney, guys that had been in the lineup and been together for a few years. Carney was a leader too, and I think that's that's one of the reasons we won. We had so many good leaders. Nobody didn't like each other. Uh, Nobody questioned anything anybody did. It was good leadership from Tony, the coaches, and then through Carney and Parkway and, and Steiny in his way, Stu and, and Eck also. So in a sense, you had about seven bonafide leaders. Let, let's go back to the way spring training was back in those days in comparison to what we see now. When the A's play the Giants during spring training, it might be two or three, maybe two games, one at Scottsdale and one in Phoenix. And then the Baybridge series, either two or three games here. So at the max, a total of, of five games. And we, we both know that that both sides would like to have some success in those games for their fan base. But take me back to 1989 and even more intensity, even in spring training for those games between the A's and the Giants and how successful the A's were at that point. Little did they know they would face them in October, what it was like in March. Well, you always wanted to beat the Giants, and you're exactly right. It didn't matter too much to the players, but it meant a lot to the fan base. And uh, the Giants were led by Roger Craig, and we had Tony LaRusa. We matched up. The record showed nine games. I still say it's 11. But either way, we won eight out of nine or ten out of 11. And <laughs> we made the Giants look real bad. Uh, my apologies to them saying this now, but there was one game we were down by eight runs going to the top of the ninth at Scottsdale Stadium. We rallied for ten. There was another game where we had a one-run lead in one of the eighth or ninth inning, and we scored another 10. It was like three games in a row, I think, we scored 10 runs late in the eighth or ninth inning. So we pretty much dominated them. But a lot of time that domination is really comes from whoever's left in the game uh, at that point. It might be a double-A player, it might be a triple-A player, but they took on the role of trying to beat the Giants, and uh, we did, and then we rolled into the playoffs or the World Series. And you thought about that. But I don't think uh, the Giants were worried about it. They were, thought they were in a good position. We thought we were, too. Uh, it meant a lot in spring training to get the talk going. But uh, it really had no bearing on the World Series. But when it's all said and done, we either beat them 12 out of 13 times all year, including the World Series, or 14 out of 15. So, uh, yeah, we pretty much dominated them that whole year. Boos, you've seen every World Series in Oakland. You can't take away the first, which is always the most special. 1972, you win. 
You beat the Reds, and then, of course, back-to-back again after that, 73 and 74. The West Coast World Series with the Dodgers in 74, then you do it again in, in, in 88. But set up the intensity or set up the atmosphere in the Bay Area for the Bay Bridge Series World Series style in 1989. Well, I think uh, Andy Dolich and Pat Gallagher from the Giants uh, were trying to come up with a logo, a name, and they called it the Bay Bridge Series. Uh, there's uh, Bay Bridge Baseball, they called it. Uh, there are different names. And so as soon as we clinched and then they clinched, uh, they got the marketing guys together. And so all the talk is about the World Series. You got to remember the Raiders weren't there then. And, of course, the 49ers were successful, but the Raiders were out of the picture. So it was just us in East Bay. And uh, so we lead up to that. Uh, we played the first two games in Oakland. Stunny hits a home run in, in game one or two. I can't remember. And uh, we win that game. And uh, now we're going over to San Francisco. So we work out there on Monday, and that's where Bob Welch gets hurt. And we think he's not going to be able to pitch the next day. Kurt Young was going to step in and start for him in game three. And then uh, we come over. i never forget, I drove over, going across the San Mateo Bridge with a couple of my staff, and the water was like glass, very calm. And somebody said calm before the storm. I said, there's not a cloud in the sky. There's not a rain forecast, anything. Well, the storm was the earthquake. I was in a visiting clubhouse then at Candlestick, which was set back by the uh, parking lot just across from the Giants clubhouse. And uh, about the time of the earthquake, I heard this roar, and I thought it was the fans. And remember, we were so far removed from the stands that it couldn't be that. And then all this dust that had probably been in the uh, air vents at Candlestick for 20, 30 years came billowing out. And then you knew it was an earthquake because everything was shaking. You could run from the visiting clubhouse out to the parking lot. It's a total of about 30 feet. And I looked up and you could see the light standers shaking. We were still shaking at the time. And obviously everybody knows that about the Cypress structure in downtown Oakland, how that pancaked. And if it wasn't for the World Series, there would have been maybe three or 400 deaths. Who knows? because it would have been regular commute. People were, took off work to go home to watch the game. This is, these were the first games that were uh, during the week, so it was a, a, a regular work schedule. And they left early, got to home to watch that, and uh, we're just fortunate nobody, not that many more people were killed. So I walk out of the clubhouse and down the long ramp and come out to the field, and some guy's got a battery-operated TV there, and he says the Bay Bridge collapsed. And I go, oh, my God, I, I just couldn't believe that. And but it wasn't collapsed and fell in the water. It was that one section we're so famous, famously reminded of that collapsed. And uh, the uh, game, we go on the field and power keeps coming on and off. And I thought to myself, we're not gonna play this game. The policemen, uh, San Francisco police brought a car onto the field so they could use the loudspeaker system on that because the power was out. Uh, we get our families down from the stands and. Then we tell them the game's canceled, so let's try to get out of here, walk across the field. There are pictures of Terry Steinbeck's wife, Mary, crying. I think that was a cover of Time Magazine. Um, I mean, just a lot of history. It's unbelievable. And if you want me to go on, I'll, I'll tell you about the rest of my day that day. Well, sure. I mean, it's you, you, you experienced every moment of what it was like and heard about it. it took, you know, it took hours to get to get back to the East Bay. If and the way that you had to get back and, and all the things that are involved in that. I, I can't imagine in the actual moment and those moments where you saw, you know, out there 
beyond the uh, the right field corner where the clubhouses are, when you see the uh, light standard swing and knowing what was happening, you're a guy that grew up in Northern California. You know what an earthquake is like, and then seeing uh, the panic and 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 sensing you know fifty thousand people trying to figure out find their way to safety that those moments must have felt like hours, but they probably were just moments, but still everything was happening so so quickly. Yeah, so what happens now? We get all the families, put them on the bus. I mean, players are leaving in uniform. Consego gets in his car. Of course, a famous picture of him getting gas down the peninsula somewhere around San Mateo, pumping his own gas in an A's uniform. It's kind of funny. Uh, but the families had to go down, had to go all the way to San Jose. The San Mateo Bridge hadn't been uh, uh, evaluated yet nor had the Dumbart Bridge. So they had to go all the way to San Jose to get back to Oakland. And a couple of times the traffic came to a complete stop and the buses actually went off the freeway on an, on an entrance ramp. And uh, that was kind of terrifying for some of the families. But so they made it back to Oakland. Uh, Sandy Alders had said, hey, when you go back to Oakland, can you go by the Coliseum? Because we knew there was all the damage on the Cypress structure. We knew downtown Oakland was a mess, glass all over. Um, so I waited until I heard the Cemetery Bridge was going to probably open about nine o'clock. So I got on the freeway about eight thirty, and it was like there was no police anywhere. Cars were driving 90, 95 miles an hour, kind of like today. Uh, but uh, so I saw that the traffic was backing up. So I went past uh, ninety-two Cemetery Bridge, cut through Foster City. It was one of the first cars to go over the bridge. Went to the Coliseum, saw just some minimal damage in a couple spots, not very much at all. And then I had to take a friend down that was staying at the uh, Hyatt Regency downtown Oakland. So I took him down there and downtown Oakland was a mess. Uh, there were some buildings that were leaning. I had a friend of mine who had an accounting office and he could never go back to that office because the building was so unsafe. Uh, but there was glass everywhere down Broadway. And of course, uh, on that battery operated TV, we saw how the Cypress structure had pancaked and what was going on there. So we go to the ballpark the next day, and, and of course, this is cell phones were in their infancy at the time, and not everybody had them. And uh, so we, we try to communicate with everybody hey, let's have a meeting, not the next day, but the day after. Uh, they're talking about canceling the World Series, they're talking about moving the World Series somewhere. And I'll never forget the statement that uh, the commissioner then said he was on an, on an ele elevator in his hotel in downtown San Francisco that did have power. And some guy got on the elevator and said, I live in a marina. I probably lost my house here at the marina district. But please don't cancel the World Series. You know, that's the only thing we got to look forward to. And Faye Vincent, the commissioner, said, I mean, that was a big point for him. Let's not cancel it. So they looked at moving it towards Southern California. They looked about moving it up to Seattle with the Dome and just decided to wait it out. They knew they couldn't play right away because they couldn't. They're, couldn't afford to have police presence there when they're so busy in the marina in the east bay everywhere santa cruz was a mess so decided uh a starting date we worked out the coliseum a few days and then uh rain was forecast so we decided to go down to phoenix flew down one morning worked out that afternoon had a team dinner with players coaches and staff only that night kind of brought everybody together tony had everybody if they wanted to speak about the earthquake and what went on. And of course, Stu got up and told about how he'd go over down there and visit the workers every day because he lived in Emeryville at the time. And what he saw, what they were doing, how brave all these guys were. And it kind of relaxed us and it put us in a good mood. We walked, we uh, 
worked out the next morning and flew up and then uh, sent all our equipment over to San Francisco. Worked out there the day before game three. And then, uh, of course, with that big break, here comes Dave Stewart and Mike Moore again for games three and four. And uh, we win and celebrate over there. But easing into the celebration because we knew people had lost their lives, they had lost their property, and uh, a lot of people lost almost everything they owned in Northern California. And so the celebration was really after the cameras went off. And we never had a parade in Oakland. We did a celebration uh, with some bleachers and, and a podium. And we took a boat from Alameda to Jack London Square. And that's where the kind of like the civic uh, celebration was with a few speeches. And uh, there was no parade because of the, uh, the earthquake. And we were okay with that. We knew that was not a time that we should be jumping up and down when people have lost so much. What was the emotion like just restarting the World Series? Was it relief? Was it a, a sense of pride? Was it a, an understanding of we need to play these games for the people that have, like you mentioned before, were, were going through some tough times or they needed something that they could, that they can count on, something that they were always used to being there for them? Yeah, it's uh, once we got the schedule, when we're going to resume, then, uh, then everybody was focused again. And like I said, we had not only the meeting down in, in uh, Phoenix, that dinner meeting, but uh, Tony was talking, everybody was talking about the, the, the World Series resuming, the damaging that we'd seen. We voted to, to uh, donate part of our shares, uh, whether we win or lose, to uh, the earthquake relief fund that had been set up. So the players were really involved with in that, giving up some of their money. Um, and uh, But our guys came together, I think, better than the Giants. Uh, there's no disrespect to the Giants. It's just Tony was a pretty good leader and wanted the guys to stay focused. And once they set up that schedule, our guys were focused. What was it like for the last out to be handled by the kid from Fremont, Dennis Eckersley, who you know meant so much to the club, certainly as, a, as the best closer and eventual Hall of Famer at that position. But to, to take the throw from Tony Phillips and for the kid that grew up, you know, just south of the Coliseum to, to be the one with that baseball at the very end. Well, it was special because, like you said, he was actually born in Oakland but raised in Fremont. And uh, he, he was a, a key figure, obviously, on that team and for all those years. But when you, when you think about it, and I'll never forget, it was the next year, 1990, in spring training, when we talked about different things. And they said, and we're talking about uh, in a first meeting about pitchers' pickoffs, uh, practicing, uh, getting over to first base, getting the ball from the second baseman or first baseman, all that. And somebody brought up and says, yeah, it's so important. It was the last play of the, of the last year. And, and it, it shows you how the little things pay off in the end. And, and Eck took everything serious. And, uh, I, you know, I've never even mentioned to him, I say, how did it feel to get the last out? I mean, we won. But personally for him, I've never talked to him about it, but it had to be special. And then finally, Voos, with, with all the games you've seen, all the World Series, and you've, you've, in your mind, you've felt like you've got some special memories for different reasons with different clubs. What, what jumps ahead for you in, in regard to the 1989 team? Well, we had almost the same club. We were losing Dave Parker as a free agent, but we had almost the same club coming back. Pitching staff was intact. That we could try to repeat. And uh, Carney Lansford came up and got a uh, artist to design a T-shirt that said, stay focused, um, don't take anything for granted, and gave him out at the beginning of spring training. So as soon as 
the World Series ends, and gosh, yes, we beat the Giants and we're king of the Bay Area. We're focusing on next year. And, uh, you know, Sandy Alderson was always trying to improve the club. And uh, winning in 89 was special. My first, my uh, most special World Series was 72 and then 89. And that 89 club was a great club. It was, they were an amazing bunch of guys. Moose, great memories and, and giving us the incredible insight of one of the most dramatic days in the history of the sport and certainly the history of the Bay Area. You walk right through it as you have with all the memories here and all the episodes. Thanks for episode 10. It was a special one. Appreciate it. My pleasure all the time, Betty. Steve Vucinich, Memories with Vuce, episode 10 about the 1989 season. Every Thursday, Memories with Vuce on Ace Cast, on Ace Total Access with Chris Townsend. And you can hear the entire interviews of all the episodes with Vuce at athletics.com slash acecast. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.